Welcome to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm one of your hosts, Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And you're joining our new podcast, which is about the inner workings of America's institutions and more specifically, the peculiar, strange, and often crazy contortions they're going through in our present moment. We are hoping to bring you a variety of exciting, intelligent, compelling guests to talk about a diversity of institutions-related topics. Before we get to today's exciting guest, I first have to ask, Aaron, how are you doing? I'm good, Charles. You know, I've been busy. It is a crazy time in the world. All of our institutions seem horrible. I have been constantly triggered by woke crap on Twitter, by the threat of impending nuclear annihilation from Russia, by all sorts of things. But, you know, despite all that, I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm well. You know, we were discussing just before we started the uh, sort of general Russian nuclear threat, and I explained to Aaron the way that I think about it, living outside of D.C., is I'm willing to spend $20 on iodine tablets. And uh, that's, that, that, that's about the extent of my bet. I'm willing to say, look, they probably won't nuke us, but if they are, I'm willing to spend $20 on being prepared. So I think I've successfully convinced Aaron to start prepping. That was my, that was my goal. I'm also working on the social control of my child. That's my major task in life. Ah. He's, uh, he's uh, learned to walk, and so now he can't be stopped from running all over the parking lot. And so the question in my life is, how do I stop my, children, my child from thinking wrongly about whether or not he should approach moving cars? And pretty soon, you're going to have another question, Charles. And that question is what concerns us on the podcast today. How are you going to prevent your child from being brainwashed by the critical race theoretic maniacs? Yeah, this is uh, is a question I consider more frequently than I'd like to admit. That said, it's not a pressing question for me yet. Maybe it will be soon. But in the meantime, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what we're talking about today? So, so we're talking about the controversy about critical race theory in our schools. Obviously, there have been a lot of dramatic protests by parents across the country concerned about the crap that their schools are teaching, you know, and more deeply, there has been a spread of these kind of weird ideas from academia that kind of have filtered down into public education race consciousness, support for certain forms of segregation in the form of affinity groups, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk more about the details of of what these ideas actually are in a minute. But today, what we're really going to be focused on is where they came from and why they've taken hold in public education in particular. Yeah, you know, and I'm really interested in, obviously, in, in our conversations, we're interested in institutions, how they change, how they get shaped, how they in turn shape other people. Today, what I'm interested in talking to our guest about, we'll introduce him in just a second, is really the, the way in which different forces and different interests led us to the sort of particular moment where kids are being segregated by race in school and we're being taught that standardized testing is bad and that being on time is white supremacist. Um, you know, there's, there's clearly an element of sort of radical ideology, but on the other hand, these radical ideologies often do not attain wide reach. You know, nobody's teaching like Georgism in our schools. 
there's clearly some profit motive that's involved here. There's the sort of DEI industrial complex. And then there's also sort of the, the political moment and the mobilization of sort of, in, in, in a sense, ideology, really just guilt, particularly among white parents over the, uh, in response to the protests last summer. So, you know, I sort of want to think about how do we weigh these different factors? What's the most effective pressure point with how these institutions were changed and how you change them back? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think uh, what I would just say, and we'll, we'll get into this in, in a bit, is I think some of the interests and incentives and weird forces you're describing were kind of organic and, and bottom up, but others were really, I, I, I think, are and, and have historically been very top down. In particular, there's, I think, a big kind of underexplored role of accreditation and school boards in shaping this stuff. And what I hope will become apparent in the course of our conversation with Max is that there actually are kind of centralized coercive pressures that don't necessarily give schools much choice uh, when it comes to embracing the DEI stuff. There's obviously some choice and the pressures are not absolute, but there actually is a kind of role that centralized coercion is playing in all this. But I guess with that, we want to bring in our guest. Uh, yeah, let me uh, introduce. Yeah, yeah, let me introduce our guest. He's Max Eden. Max is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and director of the Conservative Education Reform Network. He's been a big player in the pushback against CRT. He used to be my colleague at the Manhattan Institute, although obviously we no longer work together, sadly, but he's doing great things to AI. Max, thank you for joining us on Institutionalized. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I, I, I guess I sort of want to start with with a challenging or a, a challenge to, you know, we, we spent the past couple of minutes talking about why critics of CRT are concerned about it, sort of what the taking for granted that we should be worried about ideas spreading in a school. But I think, you know, a lot of parents in suburban districts and rural districts in many of the schools across the country, this sort of seems like a non-issue or it's restricted to like a couple of weirdo private high schools in New York City. Why is this an issue worth dedicating political energy, time, attention to? Why is it an issue at all that we are focusing on that we should be focused on? Yeah, so there are, there are I could talk, uh, I could talk Robert, so feel free to, to jump in and, and redirect me as you will. But the, there are a couple of reasons. One is the nature of the ideology itself. And two is uh, as Aaron was saying, an understanding of the coercive mechanisms and the more subtle mechanisms that push it. So to take each of those things very briefly in turn, right, the media will define critical race theory as simply a somewhat obscure, although increasingly less obscure academic legal concept that's only mentioned in law schools, that's trying to understand and address racism. And, you know, who could be against that? I mean, we want to study things we want to be against racism, but we should always try to understand things as they understand themselves. And critical race theory understands itself as a movement of scholars and activists seeking not only to study, but to transform relations between race and power that is inherently opposed to, it says questioning, but questioning always means undermining in a critical context, opposed to the fundamental tenets of the liberal order, enlightenment, rationalism, reciprocal legal reasoning, the neutral principles of constitutional law. It is quite literally uh, an anti-American ideology that carries with it a fundamental, an attempt to fundamentally change 
a personal disposition of children rather than acclimate them as citizens, as extensions of their parents and their communities into a place in society. It seeks downstream of that ideological churn to turn children into activists who understand themselves not simply as humans, but as possessors of identities. Those identities are understood to be uh, inherently opposed to and oppressed by the existing order. And it kind of leads to a, a revolutionary kind of inclination or push that is pushed in all sorts of different ways to all sorts of different levers. Well, so, so Max, I mean, you alluded to mechanisms earlier. What do you think are the central ones that are pushing this ideology? I mean, as to hear you characterize it, it sounds insane and ridiculous. So that kind of leads to the obvious next question. Well, why has such an insane and ridiculous thing taken hold so rapidly? So what we have to, what people really need to realize is that schools are fundamentally mission-driven institutions, right? For the better part of the first 300 years of American history, pre-colonial times till, depending on where you kind of want to cut it off, the, the 50s or 60s, schools were seen as kind of essentially religious institutions that were an extension of the family that started to change as the kind of progressive knowledge revolution took hold. Folks like John Dewey, uh, Andrew Rugg, some gentlemen named Counts decided that education needs to be a tool to reshape the social order. So it, it's not just... When was this chronologically? Chronologically, they kind of did most of their work teaching teachers in the 30s, and it took a few decades for it to, to filter through. And that vision was a kind of a, a progressive vision of democracy, right? Not, not your modern day progressive, but we need a, a different social order, a progressive social order, something that's in keeping with the times, but something that doesn't really have much of a content after a certain point that eventually kind of fell naturally into this multicultural impetus, which then was propagated through schools of education, through the kind of knowledge production establishment that trains teachers, trains people involved in education. Uh, but that wasn't very sustainable either because neutrality, pure neutrality, pure kind of equality of cultures doesn't really have a thrust, doesn't have a mission. And critical race theory burst under the scene as a critique of multiculturalism, as a way to say, hey, by trying to be everything to everybody, you're being nothing to nobody, <laughs> nothing to anybody. And so we need to bring back a sense of mission. And so part of the lever, and, and we can get through like precise mechanisms in a minute, but part of the lever is, as they say, or, I mean, as a, to, to paraphrase, uh, I forget the character's name, the Big Lebowski, I mean, say what you want about the tenets <laughs> of anti-racism, at least it's an ethos. And I think people, people yeah. feel like they need an ethos. They want an ethos. And partly the, the appeal is that it is an ethos and there is no kind of obvious competing ethos to it. And when we, when we hear President Trump say patriotic education, it no longer has the same ring to it, doesn't hold the same appeal. Uh, as a countercultural force to this kind of culturally revolutionary geist that's flowing through teacher training systems, the broader education blob, which we could talk more about. So, so I want to I want to sort of ask about 
uh, selfish versus selfless motive. It's I alluded to earlier in the recording, because it seems to me, you know, on, on, we often sort of talk about uh, people who propagate radical ideologies as being true believers. And I think that's sometimes true. And then sometimes a lot of people involved are doing it for pecuniary reasons or because they have some sense of social compliance that, you know, you're going along with the anti-racism because that's what makes you popular in book club. You're going along with the anti-racism because it's a way to make to make your customers happy. So how do you think about a, do you think that the people who originally propagated this stuff are primarily ideologically motivated or, motivated or primarily selfishly motivated? And then B, why do people go along with it? What are the motives that are driving that? I, I appreciate the dichotomy and I'm, I'm, I will participate in both strands of it, but it's, it is, as President Obama would say, somewhat of a false choice, <laughs> right? In Freedom Just Around the Corner, Walter McDougal Dougal kind of characterizes the American character as being essentially two things. I mean, uh, a nation of religious hustlers. And so if you can make a buck by doing good as you see it, then, you know, the, doing the good that you see trying to change society is its own form of profit. You know, that said, there is just a massive industry building up around this to take one small facet of it that if we do too much of a detour, it's going to maybe derail the conversation, social emotional learning, which is said to be wrongly accused as being part of this project, but it's, it's not, it's not wrongly accused of being part of it at all. The school budget that is the American education dollars that are flowing to social emotional learning, a sector that didn't really exist 15, 20 years ago. I saw an education week article just, just the other day has gone from, and I'm going to get these numbers precisely wrong, but directionally correct. Something like 340, uh, 340 million to 750 million, right? So there is what is on track to being, especially after COVID relief, which is going to be a very big driver of this. I mean, Cardona, Cindy Martin were, if I'm allowed to say this, and I think I'm allowed to say this, pretty transparent in viewing COVID as an opportunity for what some might say would be a great reset of the American education system, that we should come back to it, not just focused on learning, not just focused on catching kids up, but with a renewed and a rededicated emphasis on racial justice, as they put it. And, you know, hundreds of, uh, billions upon billions of dollars are flowing out of them to purposes dedicated either indirectly or directly, if you look hard enough at kind of propagating this ideology that will be diverted to all sorts of, you know, self-interested hustlers who, to their credit, really do think that they're doing, doing God's work or doing not God's work, if depending on their kind of how But, but so Max, I want to go back to something you actually said earlier, because I think it's important and it's, it's glossed over in these discussions. You talked about Dewey and how beginning in sort of the, the early 20th century, there was this idea that education should be a tool, not necessarily, not for critical race theory, of course, but for imparting certain values and for affecting certain forms of social transformations. Dewey was obviously very influential. So, so could you maybe talk more about how just there's this, this kind of like second order commitment in the education establishment that's been there for a long time, which is that not just education is going to promote certain values. I think that's you know, kind of common sense, of course it will, but that it should be trying to, and that this is in fact a central goal of public education. Because I think that's something that people don't 
A, don't realize how deeply rooted that is, and B, don't see that that's really been there long before critical race theory became a thing. Yeah, no, there there was a very telling uh, tweet that I saw after the Virginia election uh, from a professor at USC Rossier uh, School of Education, or a couple of professors. One said, you know, whatever, however bad he is as a politician, Ralph Northam was right about curriculum, which is to say that parents shouldn't control it. And another professor responded basically, well, yeah, what's the point of education if it's just going to reinforce what parents believe or what, you know, what kids believe, yeah. what parents believe. So yeah, the, the, the kind of the 1930s new fr uh, frontier thinkers, as they called themselves, Dewey, Ruggs, Kuntz, they, they got money, a substantial amount of money from private philanthropy to propagate a new system of teacher training or a new kind of ideology and mission of teacher training out of Teachers College Columbia, which ended up having widespread. And Rugg wrote something very much to the effect of, you know, teachers need to reach for power and that teachers are the uh, people who should be responsible for stewarding a kind of new social order, a new collective order. And he personally had a, a very particular uh, ideological charge to him. It's less clear to me based on research thus far that Dewey did, yeah. but more the idea, but it, it is all part of what was kind of uh, the progressive revolution in the early part of the 20th century, this thesis that the older style of representative government, communities governing themselves was, was inefficient, outdated, made obsolete by technological advancements. That was then, this is now, and we need to lead ourselves into a bold, brave new future as a society. And those who teach students are necessarily at the forefront of it. And then from there, the question is, well, what's that vision? <laughs> and, uh, there, there, there's not, there's a certain kind of a principle and a limiting principle to the original American vision, right? But there's not necessarily a principle or a limiting principle to this kind of broader capital P progressive notion that schools should be an institution dedicated to social change or social justice or racial justice or whatever sort of justice is going to be in vogue three years from now. So I, I just want to push back for a second and ask, okay, on the one hand, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that Schools should not have control over my child. Schools should not be making moral decisions independent of me as a parent. Schools should be subjugated to the family. On the other hand, if I was playing devil's advocate, I might say schools have been a site for significant moral progress over the past 50, 60, 70s year, years. Schools were important to the process of social integration of the races, for example. And parents were often a reactionary force in that same process. So how do you think about, how do you, how do you parry those objections? How absolutist should we be about parents having discretion over schools or is there, you know, is, is there a synthesis of these things? Yeah, I think, I mean, there, there, there's a kind of a, a fundamental, a, a first order question of, of justice and then a second order question of how to achieve it, right? I mean, first, what is good? And then what's the best mechanism to, to get what is good? And so your question reflects on, well, are we really sure that we want parents to be able to have potentially plenipotentiary control over their schools if these parents might be might have a conception of the good that's bad, right? And, and, and that was part of your, part of your case, so your devil's advocate case, and in some ways an angel's advocate case for, you know, a higher tier of intervention to, to kind of break over bad things. The, but before we talk about that, we need to think about like, well, what, what is the conception of, of justice that is currently motivating 
forces that have more control. And if we posit that that conception of justice is fundamentally misguided and will yield, you know, miserable, unhappy children and bad citizens, then the question becomes how best to push back against that. And given their dramatic difference between the preferences of this broader elite and parents, as evidenced really nicely by a Manhattan Institute poll, which <laughs> looked at cities and in one question looked at African-American parents in cities. So we're talking, you know, a very deep blue demographic and found that 55% of African-American parents, to my recollection, wanted to ban critical race theory. So there is right now a, a, a massive disjunction between kind of popular preference, parent preference and elite preference, but also a substantial power asymmetry. So while your point is well taken, I think that all like a net assessment of the situation points unambiguously towards we need to find ways right. to give away the power of this blob and empower parents. I mean, and so it's, it does sound like implicit in this is a critique of not just critical race theory in our institutions, but also the kind of entire post-Dewey educational order that's sort of oriented around social change because it seems like the, the critical race theory kind of shows how setting up your education system that way can be dangerous if the people who whose conception of justice predominates have bad conception of justice. So, so I guess concretely, what do you think we need to do to kind of revise or move away from that order? And what things also shouldn't we give up, right? I, obviously, you have things we, you want to change, but is there anything to kind of Charles's point that you don't want to change? Like, what's the balance? Before I, I get to answering that question, I want to give one example of it because you guys have, have been pressing me and I've been trying, although failing, to, to respond directly to the types of questions that you're interested in. I want to give one example of just the, the very palpable, actually physical danger of this inaction, right? This, there is, there is this, this notion of restorative justice in school discipline, which basically did not exist 15 years ago. I, I feel as though I can say that with confidence at this point, it was basically nowhere 15 years ago. The notion is not directly rooted in critical race theory, although where it's rooted in is interesting, and we'll discuss that at some other date perhaps, but it is parallel in reasoning and ideology to it. That thesis is that disparities in school discipline by race are prima facie evidence of institutional racism. They're evidence that teachers are systemically biased, driven by implicit or explicit or implicit biases. And that teachers in the schools are responsible for the substantial disparity in school discipline. And it is substantial. You know, it's not poverty. It's not broken homes. It's not concentrated poverty from broken homes put together. It's institutional racism, systemic racism, which we need to dismantle by moving away from a system that is punitive and exclusionary. You know, the idea that if you do something wrong, there should be a consequence for your action that might not be good, might not feel nice but is restorative, uh, that, you know, guides you to an understanding of your, of, of the harm you've done and to repair the fabric of society around that. So that all sounds very nice. It's very hard to argue against. I spent years trying to, to pick holes and push back in ways that were more or less effective because it's, it's a profoundly compelling facial argument. It was implemented 
by the Obama Department of Education, which basically said to all schools across the country, if you have different rates in school discipline, then we will investigate you through the Office for Civil Rights and we will threaten to take away all of your funding and we will only close these investigations when you agree to adopt every policy that we want you to adopt and to do so with total disregard for how this is actually affecting school climate or school safety because we are convinced that we are solving racism. And so in a matter of about eight years, maybe even less than that, six years, restorative justice went from being basically nowhere to being in more than half of schools across the country. The Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights directly coerced through investigation, as far as I, my analysis can tell, about 300 school districts serving about 10 million students. Their discipline policies were changed by uh, administrative coercion. Others changed by threat of coercion, mm-hmm. most frankly changed because the moral argument carried the day. It, 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 it flew through the establishment. It is, it is the ethos of school discipline is now to, to not punish, to not expel, to not suspend. Now, what has this done? It's by everything I've been able to read and that may be a mild exaggeration, but it's not much of one. It's been terrible. It has severely harmed learning. It has severely harmed school safety. There are studies out of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and California. This notion that you should under because it plays out as a notion to just not address situations to make the numbers look good so that the people above you with an eye to the spreadsheets and racial justice ideology think that you're fighting for social justice it played a, a large role in the parkland school shooting as i detailed in my book why meadow died and while it's too soon to tell with any definitude the same pathologies appear to have been present in oxford michigan around that certainly the apparently willful, allegedly willful, I should say, according to the $100 million lawsuit filed against the school district for enabling the shooting by not referring the kid to the SRO as alleged. I should be clear, as alleged. But nothing will stop this. Absolutely nothing will stop this because if you are convinced that you are fighting racism and that you are on the side of racial justice and that what you're doing is anti-racist, then the question becomes, is there any amount of popular discontent, any amount of disequilibrium and harm to learning, frankly, any amount of death that would convince you to stop. And the evidence thus far suggests no, actually kind of uh, a a fun aside, maybe the, the first time this has been pointed out anywhere. The DeVos Department of Education issued a school safety commission report in December of 2018, kind of partly looking at the Parkland school shooting, partly giving recommendations uh, mentioning these discipline policies were, were misguided, promoting better threat assessments, et cetera. Uh, as of, I think, December 7th, so that's a week after the Oxford shooting, the Department of Education put an advisory that this no longer reflects our position. And it is broadly expected that they will go back to pushing these policies. I should add, forgive me for, for going on a little bit of a, of a tear here. I should add, given what they have said in public events that they've organized, And given the recent action by OCR regarding data collection, and data is a a huge part of the story, which we can maybe get to in a second, they will start investigating disciplinary disparities on an intersectional basis. So not merely by race, but also by race slash sex, also by race slash non-binary, which of course requires you to collect 
information on the gender identity of every student in the school, which of course is itself an impositional act. It tells the students that this concept of gender identity is true. It leads to secondary mechanisms that put these students in front of counselors who were told to affirm anything that they hear. And behind that lies this apparatus, uh, certainly in California, also probably increasingly in other states, that genuinely has a vested interest in students in, in promulgating gender dysphoria. So uh, because there's a certain uh, a certain institutional incentive for an organization like Planned Parenthood to do that. So Max, it, it seems like uh, what, what you just said suggests that this is not just about woke school boards or woke accreditation agencies. This is also about the federal government making deliberate policy choices that encourage this stuff in all sorts of ways and really don't make it. It's not just it encourages it. It effectively mandates it. A hundred percent. Now, that's, I think, an important thing to, to see. But so to, to get back to my question, OK, so given that analysis, what do we do? I mean, within reason. Like, is it, are we talking abolish the Department of Education? Are we talking reform? Like, like, what do we do about this? <laughs> um, well, I mean, right now. eventually, but, uh, we're not, <laughs> I, 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 no offense to, to you or you, Aaron, or you, Charles. I, I, I don't think that the three of us will, through this podcast, convince, uh, the Biden admin to, to close up shop. Maybe probably, probably not. I, I we get to, to high places, man. You never know. <laughs> but the. I, I have argued and will argue that the, the single most important thing that can be done on this is to kind of undo the lower part of the original progressive revolution of the early 19th century, which was even as this kind of larger apparatus of, of knowledge and culture and increasingly government coercion, uh, as we're seeing right now was being built also local control, parent control was being cut out, out from under the legs of parents on the theory that education is too important to be left to politics, too important to be left to party machines. It should be in the hands of the experts. And so as many as half, if even not two thirds of school districts across the country, elect their school board members off cycle, you know, in the first Tuesday of April with voter turnout around six to 8%. And, and in these elections, Basically, the people who run them are the teachers unions, because that's who wins low turnout elections. That's who has power. So the teachers unions, which are a massively ideologically charged body, we should also add are a huge part of this equation, kind of a, one of the bigger stars in the overall constellation, effectively choose the people who run these schools in the first place. So to, to, you know, point you made implicitly before Charles, you know, if I'm Maybe if I see all this stuff and stuff that Rufo writes, Chris Rufo writes, stuff that I write, stuff that Aaron, you write, you, Charles, write, the stuff that we write, you can see things in, in New York City and San Francisco and Seattle. And oh my gosh, that's so crazy over there. The people who are making things crazy over there are in some part the same teachers unions who control effectively your local school board race. So the most important thing I would argue is for states to move scoreboard elections on cycle mm -hmm. and also frankly to make them partisan to make them like any other race and you know at first that might sound icky right like who wants schools to be decided in, in in democrat primaries or republican primaries but they really already are being decided in democrat primaries by and large and as the president of 
the, the Los Angeles Teachers Union, which one could say she's not representative, which is also very powerful, influential, and not entirely unusual, has said something very much to the effect of, well, we like to think that education isn't political, but we know what it is. And our babies not, not, might not be able to, to read and write, but they know what the word coup and insurrection is. Uh, and so, you know, if, if that's who you want to run schools, then you can kind of keep on the status quo and show up at the school board meetings. But if you don't want people who think like that to be running your schools, then you need to run yourself and have the, the people around you actually vote um, and have the people who are elected genuinely reflect the preferences and have the process of politics itself become an education of sorts to school board members. Because frankly, Republicans, they're, I mean, there are two parties in America, kind of two contesting visions. Republicans have traditionally not cared about education at all. We view it, they viewed it as a place to go to, to, to play good, to look nice, to be altruistic, while the Democratic Party has broadly thought of it as an engine for social change, however social change might be defined in any given era. And so there's a, just a massive asymmetry in not only institutions, but also just basic knowledge about these things. I mean, it was in, in some ways perhaps a blessing the National, the National School Board Association basically acted as an arm of the Biden Department of Justice deep state, possibly incidentally with a tie-in to a major school survey company led by Garland's son-in-law, which I don't really think that that was an explicit thing in his mind, but it's another illustration of kind of the interconnectedness of this and the web against which not only parents, but also school board members would be pushing. And to push against that web, you need to know a lot more than I think is commonly known about who runs our schools, how, and to what end. Yeah. You know, I, I, I want to ask one more question and then I think we'll list closing thoughts, but you know, so far, a lot of the CRT dispute has been about these uh, state level bans on content in schools. It seems like you're saying what matters much more structure is how we decide who's in charge. So do you think there's a role for targeting content? How important is that versus how we think about the bigger political, how power gets allocated? Yeah, the, the critical race ban phenomenon of this past year is something that I have welcomed. I, I you know, pushed to some degree. And I think it was very salutary and useful because it was fundamentally educative, right? Um, it, it kind of asked parents to look at things and it, it posed two sides of the debate where one side, wait, why are they defending segregation? Why are they defending teaching kids that whiteness is a contract with the devil? Why are they telling me that they're not really doing those things? What's really going on? I mean, I think that the, the education process for parents from these bands will in the long run far outweigh the actual, you know, good that they will do as legislation. And I think they'll do some good, depends a lot on implementation, depends a lot on how it's worded. I have a recent report out on that uh, through AEI, looking at various state level bans and, and what they do and don't do. But most of them don't really affect curriculum. Most of them simply try to insist upon the basic protections inherent in the Civil Rights Act, which are no longer being applied by the Biden Department Office for Civil Rights. And so it's a it's an opening phase to to raise the issue and try and for state power to, to try to reassert its traditionally non-discriminatory role. But that's not really going to address the root of what parents are focused on because we see these affinity groups. They're not happening everywhere. They're frankly probably less common yet than is perceived to be in the media because they're they're kind of very uh, catnippy for, for people to write about, people to read about. 
but the levels and layers in which this ideology is presenting itself and manifesting in the classroom is vastly more complicated than, frankly, I think any state law could address itself. It has to be people who are in the schools, on the schools, people who, to whom teachers and principals directly report that will actually kind of change the culture of American education back from being a vehicle for progressive visions of social justice uh, and back into being a kind of rooted parents and community centric place where students come of age in their community and, and, and to and in their home. Yeah, so, so I think we want to move towards sort of big picture takeaways. And I, I mean, here's mine based on what you've, you've said, Max. It, it seems to me that they're going back to the progressive era. There's a kind of contradiction or at least tension within the American education order because the, the structures and the institutions are, are kind of predicated on this idea that impartial experts should somehow be steering education. But the goal of those impartial experts, and this was almost said from the beginning, was a kind of political transformation. <laughs> and, and it seems to me that in many ways, what you're saying is, look, if we're going to have education be in the business of politics, we probably are, we need to resolve that contradiction in, in favor of the political. And it's not so much that politics are in schools. That's the problem. The problem is that it's the politics of a narrow class of self-anointed woke experts claiming to be impartial while simultaneously saying that they're ushering mass social transformation. And I mean, I take it that really the way to think about this is no, we want our schools to be genuinely political and genuinely democratic. And that means not that there can't be any role for experts. I don't think anyone's saying that, but that there needs to be right democratic feedback mechanisms. Um, and that seems to be the, the core of what your prescriptions amount to. Yes, I, I, I would say that is a, a, an excellent restatement and expansion upon some of the themes that I've been trying, however, inartfully to develop here. Yeah, you know, I think I think uh, I similarly sort of come away from the conversation with a with a sense of the importance of you know, it, it, mm, reframing the sort of CRT debate as a subset of the bigger struggle over expertocratic rule in American society over the past two years that, you know, th that this has been fundamentally disputed COVID. And we didn't really get to touch on the role that COVID played in parents' anger over the past years. But obviously, uh, over the past year, it was obviously it was immense that, you know, schools messed around with parents, forced them to keep their kids at home for months and months and months. But, you know, the, the, these are byproducts of, of that same sort of, you know, top-down imposition of rule by the unelected. Um, and so I think for me, for me, what's relevant there is once you have that paradigm, like strategically, populism is a winning prescription. The, uh, the, the argument for CRT bans is not necessarily that they will be effectual. I've always been skeptical a little bit of their effect. I think they're, they're probably good, but I'm skeptical how much they'll do. But simply giving parents tools, the means, giving parents tools to know what's going on in their kid's classroom, to be engaged, to push back. Um, I like to, I like to say only half jokingly my wife that I'd absolutely rather put my kid in a public school than a private school when the time comes because of the public school, I know all the legal tools I have to mess with the teacher I don't like. But you know, that, that kind of populist attitude, I think has been the prescription for response to CRT in schools, but it makes sense at a more structural level why that's the prescription, because that's the sort of thing that you're fighting back against. That thing is something the populace is well suited to rebutting. Yeah. And, and I think to, to maybe wrap things up, it, it all, this whole debate 
this whole phenomenon in some ways was taken from subterranean to the very apparent, both by COVID, which we could have talked about for, for an hour, maybe, <laughs> maybe some other time, but also frankly, by the decision by Chris Rufo to name uh, critical race theory as the thing that it would be called. There is, you know, profound power in naming something. The critical race theorists themselves know it and boy, do they exercise it with all sorts of different names that come at you so fast, you can hardly even keep them all in your head. And I think it's that I, I don't know the precise right name for it yet. I'm working on it, but broadly, any agenda that is unabashedly pro-parent and frames itself as being a pro-parent is not only a politically winning agenda, because how can you be anti-parent? Just like, how can you be anti-anti-racist? But also something that is absolutely fundamentally, politically, philosophically, the directionally correct way to take policy reform in the next few years. Okay. Well, our, our guest has been Max Eden. Max, thanks so much for joining us. This is a great conversation. We're going to wrap up in just a minute. First, Aaron, do you have your recommendation for our listeners this week? You know, there's a lot I could do, but I'm going to troll Charles oh, no. and greet and upset him by saying that the campaign for Halo Infinite was released <laughs> recently. And it's awesome. Anyone who has an Xbox Series X or a high-end PC should get this game and go kill aliens. It's great. I know that video games are destroying America. I know that they are that there are synergies between video games and social atomization and the COVID bio regime and probably critical race theory. I'm sure there's a synergy somewhere because there always is. And yet, Halo Infinite pretty fun we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have to do an episode on video games and why they're bad we're yeah we probably will we probably will yeah. but we need to do an intervention for me yeah like we have someone come in like admitting you have the problem is the first step in <laughs> yeah wait we, we need to get you married and get your kid then you won't have time for video games all right well my Charles, recommendation. Charles, you can work you can help me work on that <laughs> my yeah i will i will right we're gonna shift over find a nice jewish girl Okay. Um, <laughs> my recommendation, and it's actually a little hard to find. It'll take some effort, but it's worth it. It's one of my favorite documentaries. It's a 2007 HBO documentary called Resolved about high school policy debate. It follows two teams, one from a rich high school in Texas, one from a poor high school in Long Beach, California, as they make their way through the world of intensive high school policy debate. It's a fascinating documentary for a host of reasons, but it's relevant to our conversation today. because So this is a 2007 documentary, and they're like, two poor black kids on the second team, their whole strategy is to be like, hang on, what if we introduced critical theory to high school debate? We're gonna, we're gonna make a revolution. And you know, I, was, I was not a high school debater. I'm not familiar with the world now, but my bet is that what was you know, revolutionary in 2007 is pretty main uh, commonplace in 2021, 2022. So I, you know, I, think it's, I think it's a great film. I encourage everyone to check it out. That's about all the time that we have. Thanks once again to our guest, Max, thanks as always to our producers at Nebulous. I've been Charles Fain Lehman. I'm Aaron Severium. And we hope you'll join us next time on Institutionalized. Mm -hmm.